are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening we turn back to Titus, Titus chapter 3, and we continue working through the book. And we've now turned into the final of three chapters in this short little book. And again, you remember this is Paul giving instructions to his fellow fellow minister, his apostolic representative who's left on the island of Crete to do the work of ministry there. And Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders, to bring structure and and governance to these churches that are on the island of Crete, these young, small churches. And then in chapter two, he's been instructing Titus what to teach, how to encourage what the people need to know in the church there. And likewise, what we need to know even here and now. So we will turn our attention to verses one and two. It's on page 998 of the Pew Bibles. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. So hear now the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, after reading a passage like this, I think a a question that we all ought to pose to ourselves is this. What do non-Christians think of you? What do non-Christians think of you? Whether you're a plumber who comes to your house, the grocery store clerk, a waiter or waitress, your relatives, your neighbors, what do these non-Christians think of you? And as we read, I think we'll have a sense of what they should be thinking of believers, what they should think of us when they come in contact with us in everyday life as we all are going about um, normal things in our lives. It is important how we live towards others. Scripture is clear. How Christians live is important. Now, to clarify, we say this over and over, we don't live this way to earn our salvation, but as a result of our salvation, we are called to live a particular way in this world. And specifically in this passage, Christianity has much to say about how we live our daily and ordinary and boring lives. We have instructions here for how a father elected, a Christ trained and a spirit-regenerated Christian is to live among non-Christians. Now that God has done this great work of salvation in your life, we are called to obedience now in daily living. What is our basic posture to the world around us? Paul gives us a glimpse of the answer to this question. Our basic posture and this answer echoes the sentiment that Jesus expressed in his prayer In John 17, his prayer, the final prayer before he was crucified, where Jesus was praying for us, his people, and Jesus says they are in the world. We are in this world. We're not withdrawing from the world. We're not shrinking back from this world. We're not begrudging the world, but we are in the world alongside non-believers. But Jesus also said, we are not of the world. 
We don't belong to the world. We have a different ultimate home. We are engaged in this world and seek its good, even though fundamentally we are different from it. This section, these two verses, are a reminder, Paul says, right at the beginning. Remind them, remind them, the churches here in Crete. Remind them, there's nothing new in these passages, nothing earth-shattering or groundbreaking, nothing different from how the saints of old were called to live as well. Abraham, in an unbelieving world, how did he live? In this exact same way. We think of Daniel, who is exiled to Babylon. How did he live in an unbelieving world? In the exact same way. So we think here of, we see here two different aspects. First, Christian conduct toward authorities. And the second aspect of Christian conduct is toward all people. So we're going to consider in verse one, our conduct toward authorities, and then verse two, our conduct toward all people. So let's consider first verse one, the Christian conduct towards authorities. I'll read the verse again, remind them all the Christians, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. There's really three commands in here. The first one is to be submissive towards rulers and authorities. And so first, Paul, off the bat, is talking about our our hearts, our attitude, our posture towards those who are in authority over us. And so it begins not with the, the details of what we actually do, but he's beginning with your heart. How do you think of rulers who are above you? Do you look at them with disgust? Do you despise them and hate them? Or do you have an appropriate Christian response of submission, of honor and respect? Because all of those who are in authority, as we read elsewhere, Romans 13 in particular, that all rulers are there because God has placed them there. These are God-given offices and rulers and authorities you can think of government officials, are there because of God's sovereignty. Now, Paul, as he was writing this, there's a man who's reigning over the Roman Empire, Empire, where Crete was one of the colonies of the Roman Empire. And you may remember the emperor, Nero. Nero was on the throne, as it were, during the time of this being written. And so Paul is telling those in Crete, you need to submit to even Nero wasn't known for his friendliness to Christians. And in fact, after the great fire that burned Rome, he blamed the Christians for it and began persecuting and torturing them. Nevertheless, Paul still says, this kind of leader you are to submit to. You should have a posture of respecting them, praying for them, seeking to honor them in every way that you're able. And this certainly applies to government as is most clearly in our mind, who are government authorities, whether local or state or national. We're to honor them and respect them and submit to them. That's our ultimate posture towards them. This also applies to other rulers, authorities that God has in our lives, whether employers, maybe. There's a position, maybe a time where you're having difficulty with an employer, somebody over you. You are still called to submit and respect them. Also, this applies to teachers. You're a student at school, and maybe you don't love your teachers and the way they handle the classroom, all the homework that they make you do. You're called to still submit to them. God has placed them in authority. We submit. But this attitude and posture, Paul goes on to give us particularities here. 
What do we do with this attitude of submission? The second command is to be obedient. To be obedient. This is what submission looks like in this context, particularly of government rulers. We are to obey civil authorities. We're to obey. It's as simple as that. The particular act of submission for the Christian when it comes to the civil realm is to obey the commands of rulers and authorities. This is the application of the fifth commandment to Christians living in this world. We are not to revile our leaders. We are not to be in open rebellion against them. We are to obey them. Now, of course, this obedience is always subservient to obedience to Christ. So if at any time we are called to obey man and that leads us in conflict with God's law, of course we don't obey them. Daniel was told you could no longer pray. What did he do? Well, he prayed to God nevertheless. We're called to pray. The government came and told us you can no longer meet for worship. What will we do? Well, we would certainly disobey. We are called to, to worship God. So yes, government is under God's ultimate authority and it can never call us to disobey God. But where it's not calling us to disobey him, we are called to obey. Even things we don't like, certain tax policies or certain things of that sort, we must obey. Obey our authorities. But beyond this, merely obeying, merely doing what they're told to do, Paul goes beyond that. And he says, even more than this, you are to be ready for every good work. Because that same attitude of submission, that posture of humility, leads us to care for our rulers, our leaders, to seek their good and seek the good of all of those around us. And so because of that, we are to be ready for every good work. We're to intentionally do good for those above us in authority and for those, for all of our neighbors, those like us in our estate. Whether that means serving in the, the PTA at school or the Rotary Club, Little League coaching, military service, other kinds of community service, caring for the, the old lady down the street, helping her get her groceries, or whether whether you know somebody's new to town and you can help them, bring them a dozen cookies. This is doing good for our neighbor, letting them know I care for you as a person made in God's image. We are to be ready for every good work. We can't allow our lives to be some, become so overcrowded that we can do no good for our neighbor. We are commanded, do every good work. In fact, Titus repeats that phrase over and over. Good works over and over and over. We are to be committed to doing good, not just to avoiding evil, but to purposely, intentionally pursue that which is good. The goal here, I think Peter, Paul states explicitly in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy chapter 2. The goal, first goal here with this, to submit, to be obedient, to do every good work, the first goal is to live peaceful and quiet lives as Christians. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul's aim is that Christians can live their own lives quietly and peacefully that we can do the normal, ordinary things of serving our neighbor and raising up our families and serving our parents as they age. These normal, ordinary things that we all do. 
Paul is concerned that we can do these things, live a peaceful and quiet life, a godly life, a dignified life. And so we respect our authorities to allow them to do their jobs well so that we can just do the basics, those things that we all as people are called to do. The goal of the Christian is not subjection of all people to some kind of ruthless Christian empire. The goal is not amassing political power just for the sake of political power. Now, of course, I'm the first to admit that the, the political situation was very different in Paul's day and age where the emperor was a single person. The law of the land was a person. Whatever he said was, was true and would go for the entire land. And in our day and age, that kind of ruling is, is spread among all the citizens of our land. Maybe we can say it's embedded even in our constitution is our ultimate ruler. And so we're to honor and respect that. But we now have an important part to play in governing our land. And so we're to do that wisely and carefully, concerned with all of those who live in this, in this nation, to seek their good. So the first goal, though, is to live a peaceful and quiet life. And a second goal we have here in the way we live towards our government is apologetic. So it has an apologetic effect. In this day, in, in, in the first century when Paul wrote this letter, there was a concern across the Roman Empire with these Jews and Christians rebelling against the Roman government. There is deep concern socially that Christianity and Judaism could, could, could undo the social fabric. There was a lot of fear of Christian revolts by the emperor. And so what Paul is saying here, he's writing to tell Christians, you don't need to make your governors worry about you at all. You are not to be a revolutionary crew. You are here to be here to serve your neighbors, to be quiet and dignified. And so this letter serves as an apologetic to the world to say, look, Christians aren't here to overturn the social fabric. We're not here to try to push everybody out and just make Christians the only ones who are running the country. No, we're going to submit to those leaders that are in place over us. And yes, we can work to as Christians, to, to have a good influence on our culture by having Christians involved in government. Yes, that's wonderful. But this apologetic concern was to help the world know Christians were not trying to overturn the social order. And as we apply this idea today, I believe it shows us that Christians should be model citizens. Christians should certainly not be condoning or going along with evil, but Christians should be known for peacefully handling conflict with dignity and respect, peacefully voicing opposition to certain government policies and programs. Yes, but doing it with dignity and respect. So this is an apologetic to the world. Christians are not trying to overthrow the emperor. Christians want to live peaceful and quiet lives. And I believe that is particularly pertinent and poignant for us today. These things we can only do, we can only have that attitude of submission and obedience and, and that desire, the zeal for every good work, if we are confident in the one who is sovereign over government. If we think government is all the authority and power that there is in the world, we're going to be clamoring for every ounce of political control we can muster. But if we have confidence in the one who is sovereign over every government, entity, the one who is truly in charge, we can rest in him and obey him in these ways. We can rest in submitting to them, knowing they're ultimately accountable to God for what they do. They're not accountable ultimately to me. There's a God of heaven and earth who will judge every government leader 
for every decision they make. And my place right here and right now is to submit to them and to obey them insofar as I can that is consistent with God's word. We must have an assurance of God's sovereignty. We need to seek to grow in understanding God's sovereignty. And the sovereignty is confirmed by the work of Christ for us. That even this unjust slaughter of a human being, God ordained that you and I would be saved from our sins. We have a God who is supreme over all of history, that nothing escapes his view. There's nothing that happens apart from his control. And as we look to Christ in this ultimate case of injustice, we can be confident that today God is still at work in the world and we can cling to the gospel of grace as we obey, as we submit to our authorities. So first, Christian conduct towards authorities. And then in verse two, Paul turns to our conduct towards all people. And again, I'll read this verse again. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And again, there's a list of four commands that are in this one verse. And the first one is to speak evil of no one. Now here, it doesn't simply mean don't say something bad about somebody else because if somebody has done something bad, there's nothing wrong with saying, yes, this person over here, he has lied. That's not what he's speaking of. But he's speaking here more about slander. Do not slander, as the NIV says, anyone. Do not do evil with your words towards anyone. Yes, speak the truth, but do not let your words do evil to anyone. And we actually, in our passage this morning in Acts, we read of, of Paul apologizing for the way that he spoke evil of the chief priest. We are not to speak evil of anyone. Speak, supposed to speak the truth. Do not slander. Our words are important. Christians should not be the ones who are spewing evil off their lips, who are full of condemnations all the time, who are filled with malicious words. Yes, speak the truth about evil, but do not slander. But going along with this is the second command, to avoid quarreling, to avoid quarreling. Christians are not to be ones getting into fights all the time. Yes, there's certainly place for debate. There's certainly place for important topics being discussed. But the quarreling here he's talking about are these, these petty little things. Having a quarreling spirit about you where you're always looking for a fight. You're always trying to show everybody else why they're wrong. Every place, every time. This quarreling spirit and attitude is destructive because it now sets us up against every person we come in contact to and come in contact with. It's ultimately driven by a spirit of pride that I'm superior, superior and I need you to know it. So we don't quarrel. Yes, we debate. Yes, we have important discussions. We have disagreements with people and with one another. But the quarreling spirit we avoid. Third, he calls us to be gentle. Another translation of this word we read earlier in Philippians 4 is reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Or I like, again, the NIV translation here, to be considerate. Be a reasonable person. Be considerate of others. As you walk through the world, don't just have put on tunnel vision. It's not about you. As you go through the grocery store, be considerate. With the mother with the three small children who's having a difficult time, a word of encouragement can go a long way. 
Be kind, reasonable. Be one who who cares about others, who goes out of your way to consider their needs above yours. This applies to all people, wherever we come in contact with. Not just your family, not just people you like, not just people who are easy to love. Be considerate of all. And then the fourth command is to show perfect courtesy towards all people. What's ironic is this word, courtesy, is actually the standard Greek word that's translated gentle. So we had gentle in the the previous command, which really probably should be something more like considerate. But here, the fourth command is really about gentleness, to show perfect gentleness towards all people. This is the word Jesus uses in Matthew 11, 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Show perfect gentleness towards all people. When people characterize you as gentle, are you gentle and respectful and kind to those that you come in contact with? When somebody messes up at your house, the plumber messes up and does something wrong, are you going to come in and start fighting? Are you going to point it out gently and kindly? All interactions with others should be characterized by these four commands. These ultimately come out of of the command to love your neighbors as yourself. If we love them, we will not speak evil of them. We will not be quarreling with them. We will be gentle and considerate. We will show perfect gentleness towards all. This is what loving others, even in a world that's divided like ours, even when we meet people that politically we'd have nothing in common with, we can still show them perfect gentleness. Every interaction with others should be characterized by these four truths. Maybe it's family that's difficult. Maybe it's at work where it's difficult for you to act this way. Or at school, you're gentle with your friends, commerce, different organizations, and on and on and on. We should be characterized by these traits. And I think in our day and age, there's a particular application of this for us, where we are fall particular prey to disobeying God on these fronts, and that's in the realm of social media. It's in the realm of Twitter and Facebook, all these places where it's so easy to go and just to spill hatred and evil day in and day out. And it's so easy if you're on there to be infected by it and to no longer have a spirit of gentleness about you, but to have that quarreling spirit because you see everybody fighting around you all the time. But instead, we can infiltrate those areas and to be that light of the hope of the gospel. We can show perfect gentleness, avoid quarreling, speaking evil of no one. Christians should be different from the world on social media. I'm afraid too often nobody could tell, could tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. We must be different. We must show the world there is a different way. Ultimately, we are called to imitate Christ. It is the testimony of Christ that is at stake here. If we refuse to obey in these ways, what what difference does Christianity make then? Why would anybody want to follow Christ? We are not adorning the doctrine of our God and of our Savior. 
if we look just like the world, reviling our government, hating our president, speaking evil of everyone around us, using social media to destroy other people's good name. We're just like the world. I'm a child of the 90s. And one of those fads in the 90s that came and went that I often made fun of at the time was the what would Jesus do movement. Remember that, the what would Jesus do bracelets and the bumper stickers and the t-shirts. Oh, I had them all. And I came to the point of thinking that was really silly. And you know what? I think that was really silly of me. And of course, that can be moralistic. Yes, of course, that can undermine the fact that Christ had a redemptive purpose in this world in the same way that you and I don't have. We don't go to a cross to die. So yes, there's something distinctive about Christ's ethic, no doubt. But what I failed to grasp was that in difficult situations, sometimes what we can do, say, what would Christ do in a situation such as this? How did Christ love those people who are completely different from him? How did Christ come to the prostitute and show her great love and call her to salvation? How did Christ come to those undesirables, the outcasts, the people who didn't look to him in faith? What would Jesus do? And I think the question for you and I that we need to answer is, do I know what Christ would do? And of course, certainly there's a hypothetical nature to much of our situations today. We wouldn't know exactly what Christ would do, but do we know the heart of Christ enough to have a sense of how Christ would act? What would he do? Do we know his love for the lost? Do we know his zeal for the name of his father? his willingness to rebuke those who do evil in the name of God, but his patience to those outside of the covenant community. What would Jesus do? Let's model ourselves after our Savior, the one who died that we might live, the one who rescued us from hell itself, has given us eternal life. How would Jesus live? How would he operate in a world like ours? What would Jesus do? As Christ loved us when we were of the world, let us also love the world. Love those who are in the world, demonstrating our ultimate hope in the sovereign God, not in worldly institutions and governments. And we demonstrate that by being willing to submit to them today, while doing everything we can to build up and encourage people, we are demonstrating Christ is on his throne. Christ reigns supreme. That our desire is for nothing but the glory of our Savior. So let us look to him in prayer, asking that he would enable us for these things. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.